thewealthmanagement.com Advisor Innovations Podcast is sponsored by LPL. As financial advice continues to evolve, LPL is at the forefront. Whether it's growing your RIA or building an independent practice, advisors can pick the business model, services, technology, and product mix that best meets their clients' needs. As a top wealth management firm, 100% dedicated to advisor success, LPL looks forward to learning how they can help you build your tomorrow today. For information and show notes, go visit lpl.com slash advisor innovation. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Advisor Innovations Podcast. My name is David Armstrong. I'm the editor of wealthmanagement.com. And joining me today is really an advisor who needs no introduction to this audience, Rick Edelman. Rick, thanks very much for joining us. It's my pleasure, David. Thanks for having me. So I say you need no introduction. I will just give a brief sketch here. I think everyone knows the success story of Edelman Financial Services. He founded that firm, I think, in 1985, 1986. 86, yeah. 86, grew to probably close to $22 billion in assets by the time you merged the firm with Edelman Financial. And- yeah, or more. Uh, it's hard to remember way back when. But yeah, we did the merger over three years ago with, with Financial Engines. Well, it was, it was an amazing growth trajectory for uh, Edelman Financial Services. Clearly, you had the popular radio show. Uh, I think everyone knows the Rick Edelman show, uh, a number of books that you wrote. And what I, I see is really kind of a, uh, a focus on clients that largely were overlooked, I think, by more established wealth management firms, namely middle-class mass affluent clients. I think that was kind of your target. And not a lot of people were focusing on that as a profitable target at the time you started. Is that true? I don't think anybody is even today. You're you're exactly right. The vast majority, if not everybody in the financial services sector, including RIAs and financial advisors, target high net worth clients, million dollar accounts and above. The attitude has always been, I can only handle 150 or so clients. If they each have a million bucks, I get $150 million practice. I charge them all 1%. I'm grossing $1.5 million. I pay my expenses and I end up with a really nice living. I play golf two days a week, managing money to help rich people stay rich. That wasn't what I was at all interested in doing. My wife and I got into this business because we were young, newly married, seeking help from a financial advisor and couldn't get it. And we were like, this is crazy. They're only helping rich people stay rich. What about the 99% of this country who isn't wealthy, but aspires to achieve financial success, wants to get uh, themselves into a house, want to save for college for their children, want to prepare for retirement, help aging parents? Who's there to help them? And so we built our firm specifically to help those who need the help and who are don't have access to it. And this is something I've always heard about you. You started uh, life as a financial journalist, correct? Yes, that was uh, the business I was in. I was a, a journalist. Uh, I was an editor for a variety of publications in the healthcare field and also the financial field. Uh, my background's in journalism, communications, so my degrees in communications, public relations, advertising, marketing, journalism, uh, and knew nothing about personal finance, Took never took a, a a business class in college, no economics or tax or business courses. And so I wasn't brainwashed. So when I entered this field, uh, I used my journalism background, which is to ask probing questions. So people would say, pay off your mortgage, own your home outright. And I'd say, why? (laughs) And I never got a good answer. People kept saying, oh, it's always been that way. It's the American dream. So I was compelled to do my own research because we're taught as journalists, get three sources before you 
quote anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I did my own research and discovered that a lot of the advice that people give in the business is either bad advice or simply antiquated, no longer applicable. Pay off your mortgage. That made sense in the 1930s. Doesn't make any sense in the 21st century. So I began offering what I later discovered was unconventional advice, uh, uh, uncommon advice, but it was common sense. Consumers could understand it. They could apply it. They could stick with it. And that helped uh, create a a large uh, appeal for us and our services and was the Uh, basis for the growth of our business. And then we had another piece of it is that we weren't trying to simply serve a couple of hundred people. My wife and I had the attitude that we will help anybody who asks for our help. And if the demand for help exceeds our capacity, we'll grow our capacity to meet demand. And so we started adding financial planners to our practice because demand was more than I could personally accommodate. And that growth continues today. We have 350 or so financial planners in the firm throughout the country. And as demand continues, we'll continue to grow to serve them. Well, it's, it's, it was an amazing growth story. It continues to be an amazing growth story um, in the RIA space, for sure. You know, you mentioned that you don't think that advisors are even tackling this portion of the market today. What are your views on where wealth management is today. It strikes me that there are plenty of RIAs that are maybe trying to emulate a little bit of what you accomplished. Um, you know, there are smaller practices, younger practices that seem to kind of want to go after that middle market client. Uh, certainly, technology has made those constraints that you referenced easier to deal with. You know, maybe more profitably serve that middle market client uh, because of technology. Where do you think we are in the industry today in terms of meeting the needs that are out there? You're, you're absolutely right, David. And, and when I said nobody's doing it, I'm referring to the big firms. They're, they're not going downscale enough at all or, or fast enough. But there are young firms, often technology-driven firms, that are targeting uh, younger investors, uh, Americans with uh, relatively small amounts of assets. It's been made available through technological innovation. Exponential Technologies, which was the focus of my most recent book, uh, The Truth About Your Future, has democratized and demonetized uh, financial services. You know, I remember, uh, and those old, as old as me will remember, back in the 80s, if you wanted to buy stocks, you had to buy a round lot. Remember that? Uh, and that means you had to buy 100 shares of a stock. And uh, so if a stock was 25 bucks, you needed $2,500 to buy a single stock. What 25-year-old had that kind of cash? Today, of course, you can buy a single share. In fact, you can buy a fraction of a share and you, you, know, you can invest as little as $5 at major brokerage firms like Fidelity and Schwab, and you can do it uh, commission-free uh, at a lot of firms. Uh, and then you've got the robo-advisors, everybody from InvestNet and, and Betterment, Robinhood, Acorns, uh, and many others that are catering to young, new investors who don't have much money, but have a lot of future and potential ahead of them. So that's all very, very exciting. uh, And it's wonderful to see. And we're seeing greater inclusion than ever before. But what I'm still finding is that the traditional players, the big firms in the industry, both the biggest RIAs as well as the biggest financial services companies, you know, the Morgan Stanleys of the world, they're still not catering to these folks. And I think that they're setting themselves up for long-term failure because that 25-year-old, when they're 55, isn't suddenly going to dump the firm that has served them for 30 years and turn to 
their uncle's uh, financial planning or, or investment management firm. So I'm a big believer in the Ronald McDonald strategy. Get them while they're young, win their hearts and souls, serve them extremely well, even though there's not much of an ROI in it for you at the moment. And if you grow up with your clients in 20 years, you'll be uh, very, very well off. That's been our experience at Edelman Financial Engines. And I remember once one of my colleagues, uh, one of the planners been with us for more than 20 years, came to me one day and he said, of his 20 largest clients, this is a guy managing like 400 million in assets, hundreds of clients uh, over the decades uh, with me. And he said of his 20 largest clients, 13 of them started as pro bono cases. Hmm. So if you don't focus on what's in it for you today, but instead focus on the best interests of the people who are asking for your help, just serve them. And, and we do massive amounts of pro bono, always have. I think we probably do more of it than anybody in the industry because it's a key focus for us. The only metric we have, the only metric we've ever had in accepting you as a client is your desire to obtain our help. That's it. You've got to ask for our help and be willing to follow it. And if you do those two things, we'll help you no matter how much or how little money you have. Oh, that's fantastic. Do you think that the quality of advice has gotten better? Uh, you mentioned earlier that you know some of the uh, advice seemed to be outdated uh, and and not making a lot of sense. Uh, in this transition that you've seen for the past thirty plus years in the industry, is the quality of the advice clients are getting better? Much, much, much better. That's part of the reason that I got into this business in the uh, 1980s is because Gene and I couldn't find someone who was giving us good advice that was accessible to us. There were virtually no resources for financial knowledge or education. There was Lewis Rukeyser uh, and Money Magazine. That was about it. Today, of course, there are entire television networks 24-7 devoted to money. There are thousands of books written every year. I've written 10 of them. There are children's books teaching kids about money for the first time. Gene and I together wrote uh, a children's book a couple of years ago called The Squirrel Manifesto, That's teaching right. four to eight-year-olds the basic principles of money. We have schools teaching money more than ever. It's still too few schools. Only about half of the schools in the, uh, in the country are teaching personal finance uh, to high schools, but it's better than it ever used to be. And the level of education and knowledge of advisors themselves has gotten better. We've gone from a sales world where you are a stockbroker selling products on commission, often egregious products, limited partnerships, leverage deals, all kinds of wacky stuff, to now fee-based professional fiduciaries operating in the client's best interest and using a much higher level of knowledge and integrity, along with better regulatory supervision. The SEC is far better at their job today than they were 30 years ago. They're determined to make sure there's never another Bernie Madoff. And they're doing an increasingly good job to helping make sure that everybody's doing what they ought to be doing and the way they ought to be doing it. So it's been wonderful. Uh, and that's a big part of the reason my wife and I decided to step away from Edelman Financial Engines at the end of this year. We made that announcement back in June. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's because, frankly, the, the traditional financial planning environment uh, and even our own firm really doesn't need us so much anymore. There is now so much uh, knowledge, information, and access to it by individual investors and consumers that we're not as needed the way that we were 10, 20 years ago. We used to be the only way, the only resource available for folks. It's not true anymore. There's, there's a 
a ton available, including the incredible resources of Edelman Financial Engines. And that's allowing us to move on in our own lives to our next chapter, uh, where we think we're going to be able to have the kind of impact uh, that we had over the past 36 years uh, in the financial planning sector. Yeah. And I want to get to that stuff too, because that's exciting, exciting stuff. Um, but let me uh, just stick with this one more time. You, uh, Where do you come down on this uh, argument that's been recently bubbling up in the RA industry around fees uh, and the way RA is structured, traditional AUM model versus what, what retainer, hourly, fee-for-service, whatever it might be. There seems to be a lot of antagonism towards the AUM model and, and whether or not true financial planning can be uh, uh, served through an AUM model. Where, where do you come um, down on the fee? I'm, I have no problem with the AUM model. I think it is, if not here to stay, it is certainly here to linger <laughs> for a, a couple of more decades. Uh, and largely because there isn't any particularly strong consumer demand for an alternative. Consumers like the AUM model. We've been using it for decades. Uh, it began in the mutual fund industry where uh, they essentially had the same AUM model. You didn't pay commissions. Um, you simply pay an annual fee to own your mutual fund or ETF. The, the commission mutual funds, are, you know, they went by the wayside for the most part, along with commissions in stock and bond trading. Uh, investors like the AUM model because it puts the advisor on the same side of the table as the client. The client wants the account value to go up. So does the advisor, because the higher the, the account, the bigger the fee. Uh, when the account falls, so does the fee. So advisors and their clients have the same motivation and goal. And that helps to align interests, eliminate conflicts. It's easy for disclosure. Uh, it's understandable. And from a practice management perspective, it eliminates billing, uh, which is a huge pain in the butt. Uh, when you're dealing with accounts receivable, you got to send out invoices, et cetera. Clients hate to get bills in the mail. Uh, they're slow to pay. Forcing the advisor to distract themselves from having to collect the uh, invoices. Clients, when they realize they're paying by the hour uh, or for a flat rate of services, they're watching the clock. They're hesitant to call the advisor because they're fearful of the clock ticking. This is why we all hate lawyers and accountants, because the more we talk to them, the more they charge us. Um, so the AUM model makes that simple and easy, and we're able to say to our client, call us as often as you want, talk to us as often as you want, meet with us as often as you want. It's not going to affect the fee you pay. And when you look at the totality of services that we provide, provide. Here's the weird part about the AUM fee. It is only applied to the investment account that we're managing for the client. That really doesn't make a lot of sense because a huge part of the value we provide to clients has nothing to do with that. When we give you advice on refinancing your mortgage, which might save you $30,000 over the course of the loan, does that thirty grand get factored into the ROR, uh, the, the ROI on the uh, investment portfolio? It doesn't. If I tell you to buy a life insurance policy for for a million dollars, and your spouse dies, and you collect the million dollars tax free. I didn't bill you for that, uh, nor did they get factored into the ROI. Uh, other estate planning issues, college planning issues, tax savings issues, employee benefits, the list goes on and on and on of where advisors are providing value, but the fee isn't directly related to any of that. So advisors often get dinged for the AUM model, but I think for advisors who are truly providing comprehensive financial planning services, they're getting dinged unfairly and inaccurately by folks who are simply trying to suggest that they're holier than thou. Mm -hmm. If you want to charge uh, an hourly rate or a retainer rate, go ahead, knock yourself out. 
But that doesn't mean that the guys who are charging an AUM model are lesser than you or inferior uh, ethically or morally. Yeah. And, and you know, we had uh, Rick Ferry on the podcast and, and he was making the, the opposite point, right? That uh, uh, you should charge for the fees that you're providing your clients, not necessarily on the management of the assets. It's, it's a healthy debate, I think. And, and you're right. There's a lot of uh, a holier than thou attitudes on. And that's the problem I have with it. This isn't an ethical issue. This is a business model issue. How do you want your business to operate? What kind of client do you want to attract? You you will discover that there are plenty of consumers available for every different business model. In some practices, commissions still thrive. Mm-hmm. It's perfect. It's not an ethical issue. It's a disclosure issue. It's a practice management issue. It's for advisors to some degree, a lifestyle issue. You just have to simply choose uh, what it is you prefer to do. But this uh, attitude that Others are um, crooked or unethical or immoral because they're doing it in a different way. That undermines the credibility of the entire profession. It reduces consumer confidence. It reduces the likelihood that people are going to be willing to contact advisors because of their fears that they're going to be mistreated. That doesn't serve. Then we're the only industry that does this. Doctors don't bitch about other doctors. Lawyers don't complain about other lawyers. Accountants don't disparage other accountants. Why is it that so many people in our industry feel they have to get onto a pedestal and bash their colleagues? Mm. I don't get it. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Here's the advice I give my audience on my radio show. Interview several advisors. A key conversation needs to be compensation. Not just compensation. The way I phrase it is, ask, what are the total costs I will pay? Which is different from, what do you charge? Understand the total costs you will pay, the total services you will receive, and comparison shop, just like you do for washing machines. And you'll end up with the advisor who's right for you. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that you're moving away from the company at the end of this year. That also strikes me as an interesting move, because one of the things that I think you've swum against the tide a little bit Advisors are always told, you know, take your name off the door because your firm will be worth more if it's not associated with a single individual. You've managed to build something with your name on the door that seems to defy that logic. Would you, how would you talk to other advisors who, who maybe want to follow in your path uh, about this notion of, of key man risk in a firm? Uh, you seem to have avoided it. Uh, some other large firms have, have avoided it. Yet, I think the advice is sound for most advisors, right? Well, this is a complicated conversation, David, and um, try to summarize it briefly. I I do an entire hour-long presentations on this one question, branding. Part of the reason I do the way, what I do the way I do it is because that was the world I lived in in the mid-1980s. Back then, firms that didn't label their companies on the founder's name were highly suspect. Remember Mm -hmm. Stratton Oakmont? Blinder Robinson, these guys were the crooks, the boiler room operations. And when you hid behind a false name or when you used some smokescreen DBA, that wasn't as credible. All the big established firms, Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, Dean Witter, Prudential Beige, all of these folks were the names of their founders that went back 150 years. And if you were the new kid on the block, you were highly suspect. And if you further hid behind some weird fake name you invented, you were even more suspect. So I used Edelman Financial Services because that was just the nomenclature of the day. It wasn't until the 90s and the dot-com era that you started to come up with these wacko names of Google and Amazon and Apple that 
had nothing to do with the product or service that they were selling. So I don't know if today, if I was starting a financial planning practice, I don't know if I would call it Edelman Financial because that's not what's in vogue today. And so don't necessarily do what I did because my circumstances back then are not your circumstances today. The second thing I would say is that key man risk is unavoidable because we are in a personal service industry. Everything we do is all about the personal relationship between us and the client. Uh, And when I train financial advisors, I remind them that the number one reason that the client hires you is because they like you. Mm. It's not your skills or your talent or your service or your fees. They like you. If they don't like you, they're not going to hire you. We're not surgeons where it doesn't matter if I like the surgeon. I'm asleep when I'm with him. So, you know, when she's doing surgery on me, all I care about is that she's got a steady hand with the scalpel. Relationship, personal, you know, attitude, it doesn't really matter a whole lot. But when we're with our clients, we're spending hours with them in each session. And this is over extended periods. We tend to get to know them and their families extremely well. We want to spend time with people we like, and that's a big barometer in who clients hire. So even if you don't call your company by your name, it's your name that is on, that really, really matters. Uh, it's on your office door. It's on your email address. It's on your Zoom link every time you show up. So your name is your name. There's no avoiding it. And therefore, key man risk is unavoidable. You need to embrace it and acknowledge it rather than trying to hide from it or pretend it's not important. And I guess we'll find out uh, what uh, Edelman Financial Engines uh, uh, does without Rick Edelman, right? Uh, you're stepping away at the end of the year. I am. Uh, I'm going to stay on the board, uh, and uh, I'm still the biggest individual shareholder, so mm-hmm. I still uh, hope much for their success, and I'll still contribute to the extent that they uh, uh, want uh, at the board level, strategically and such. Uh, they're going to keep the name, uh, at least for now. Uh, we do have built a strong brand in the marketplace. There's no particular reason to disrupt it. Uh, I mean, Ford is still called Ford, even though Henry died decades ago. Um, so that, that just because I'm not involved any longer doesn't mean they have to necessarily change the name. They should keep it as long as it makes business sense to keep it. Uh, and it'll self-correct on, on that basis. Uh, as far as how they're going to operate the business going forward... I have reason to believe that they're going to maintain the culture that Gene and I created over the decades, uh, the client first and financial planning strategies and culture so that client consistency and continuity will remain intact. It's a successful winning model that we've taught hundreds within our firm to apply. I don't believe the firm has any intention of abandoning that. I think instead they're going to work hard to show clients that it is intact and secure, even though Gene and I are not necessarily involved. And one of the strategies there with Edelman, and we'll move to the future in a minute, but one of the strategies there with Edelman Financial Engines is something I think we see with other RAs now too, with this matching of an RIA with a uh, retirement plan advisory service, right? Like Financial Engines was. And Peter just did it at Creative Planning. Yeah, mm -hmm, that's right. How has that worked for you all? I mean, is this transition from taking uh, basically 401k participants and moving them into a more holistic financial plan relationship with the advisory firm a success? Are you, what, what have you learned along that? It's becoming successful. The reason it isn't at full pace yet is because we've been distracted in the integration of the two companies themselves. You know, we were dealing with huge successful organizations 
which combined have 1500 employees and so we had to go through all the stuff that yeah that everybody goes through when there's a a merger and an integration process it always takes years to uh, accomplish and we're now past the three-year mark in our integration and and the integration's finally finished we finished it probably oh, mostly about a year ago and some remnants earlier this year so we have begun to develop the integration of uh, workplace and our wealth management business and we are we're not yet at full stride but we're getting there and we're getting there very quickly the early indications are that it's going extremely well the workplace clients the you know we're the biggest workplace provider of, of advice in the country I think it's like a hundred and 30 of the Fortune 500 are our clients. Uh, there's over uh, 10 million workers around the country uh, with more than a trillion dollars in collective 401k assets that, that we provide free advice and service to. Uh, and we manage assets for a million of those workers, well, a million two uh, of those folks around the country. And the receptivity has been wonderful from everywhere from the boardroom at these major companies to the frontline workers on the factory floor. Because we have found as the industry has grown up, uh, we used to operate, and I say we collectively as an industry, we used to operate in silos. Um, you bought insurance from an insurance agent, you got a bank account from a bank, you got a credit card from a credit card company, you got your investments from a stockbroker, and everybody did their own thing with little to no coordination among them. We all now realize that that doesn't work. It doesn't produce ideal results, that we can re improve returns while lowering risks and fees by acting holistically, comprehensively. So dealing with your 401k, which is increasingly the number one asset people have in their lives, to their the rest of their personal finances, well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So by integrating them together, <clears throat> by being able to provide to you in the workplace access to a financial planner who's able to give you advice on all the other elements of your personal finances, well, you're going to end up with better results overall. And one simple illustration, uh, one big controversy in our industry has been 401k rollovers. Mm -hmm. The SEC and FINRA don't like it very often. That's uh, very controversial because you've got low fees in a 401k and advisors and mutual fund companies and others encourage people to roll the money over at separation of service into an IRA where the fees can be 10 times more. Well, the only reason they're doing it is to collect the AUM. But if we're now an integrated enterprise, we don't need to roll the money out of the 401k. We can continue managing it there just as we've been managing it throughout your career integrated with the rest of your assets. So we're helping to lower clients' costs, reduce their tax liabilities, give them more comprehensive portfolio management. It's, what's not to love? So this, is, this model is going to work. And we paved the way for this in our merger with, uh, between Edelman Financial Services and Financial Engines. And others have been observing this, and that's why you've got folks like Peter Malouk, who's not a dummy, saying, hey, there's a there there. And he's gone and done the same thing with his acquisition of a 401k provider. Yeah, it's, a, it's fascinating. It's interesting. And I think uh, you know a lot of 401k participants, just out of sheer inertia, uh, leave their money at a 401k even after they've left the company and gone somewhere else. Uh, it's a problem. And and I, I see this as a solution. It's great. Well, you keep this in mind, David, you're absolutely right about this, that for a, a huge number of Americans, the 401k is their only 
retirement savings vehicle or long-term investment vehicle of any sort. Uh, these folks aren't saving on their own elsewhere. They don't have a financial advisor on their own. And now we're suddenly giving them access to professional financial advisors that they never would have gotten on their own or sought on their own, or in many cases could have afforded on their own. And this is further democratizing and demonetizing the access of professional financial advice. They're going to end up wealthier as a result of it. That's good news for everybody. The employers, the 401k balance, it lowers fees for every worker. It uh, provides greater inclusion in the marketplace. Assets rise for the advisors. The stock market gets the beneficiary of that by rising in value, which helps all investors. It's just, it's a wonderfully inclusionary thing. And of course, inclusion is a huge word these days and rightfully so. And this is one small way that we can help contribute to that. Yeah, interesting. It'll be interesting to see how it develops. Let's turn a little bit then to the future of uh, Rick Edelman. You have taken an interest in sort of exponential technology, I think as you term it or how it's termed, mm -hmm. uh, for quite some time now. Uh, uh, tell me a little bit about the the book you published, uh, your interest in, in technology, or it's not just technology, right? It's also healthcare, uh, uh, anything that... Uh, uh, innovative technology that seems to be disruptive. You started an ETF, I think, with iShares, the Exponential Technology ETF. Correct. Um, tell me a little bit about your, your history there, your, your intellectual growth, I guess, in terms of, of, of this topic. Well, it, it's you know it goes back to the comments we talked about earlier. I've always regarded myself as uh, a futurist, uh, as someone who thinks about where we're going. I, to me, I think that's our fundamental job as financial planners, we plan, we, we focus on the future. You know, accountants are historians. They document the past. That's what a tax return is. You know, how much money did you make last year? So they look backward. We look forward. And as we look forward, we can't provide the advice we gave in the past because that might not be applicable to where we're headed. So I've always tried to anticipate where are we going. And by doing that, I hang around with a lot of folks who are a lot smarter than me at answering those questions. Who are the people that are inventing the future? And increasingly, the future is, in fact, being invented. In the old days, a couple of hundred years, a couple of thousand years ago, the, the future was born. You, you, you produce the future by having babies. Today, we produce the future by in innovating it and inventing it with technology. And what we're seeing over uh, the last 20 years is an incredible growth in the capabilities of those technologies. It all goes back to Gordon Moore, who in the 1960s postulated Moore's Law, that computer technology capability is power every 18 months, and the cost is dropping in half every 18 months, and the size is shrinking at a similar rate. So back in the 70s, your you know, a computer filled an entire room. In the 80s, they sat on a desk. In the 90s, they sat in your lap. In the 2000s, they uh, fit on the palm of your wrist. And today, in this decade, uh, they're going to be so small that computers will be the size of a grain of rice, and they'll fit inside your brain. They'll be implantable. Well, with this kind of innovation and technological capability, we're seeing the emergence of incredible technologies, 3D printing, AI, robotics, machine learning, computer networks, uh, nanotech, biotech, bioinformatics, uh, big data, fintech, 
agri-tech uh, and education tech. It, it's just amazing how fast this stuff is occurring. And therefore, we need to recognize the disruptive nature of these technologies. You know, Blockbuster was destroyed by Netflix. That's, an inno- that's a technologically innovative disruption. Uh, we're seeing disruption in many, a great many other areas. So we need to anticipate these to be able to give our clients the advice they need for the future they're going to be living in. And I've been exploring this for a really long time. Back in 2012, I went through the executive program at Singularity University, uh, founded by Peter Diamandis and Ray Kurzweil, mm-hmm. uh, two of the brightest futurists on the planet. And that's where I first heard about Bitcoin. Um, and this is 2012. Bitcoin was only a, a couple of years old at that point. And so I ended up through a lot of research and spending time with this, realizing that this is a terrific investment opportunity. With disruption comes uh, opportunity, but there was no vehicle available for ordinary investors to invest in these companies that are either developing these technologies or applying them in their businesses. And so I went to BlackRock and asked them to launch an ETF in the field of exponential technologies. Uh, BlackRock agreed. We went to Morningstar, and I worked closely with Morningstar to develop the Exponential Technologies Index, which we licensed to BlackRock. Uh, And they launched in 2015 the iShares Exponential Technologies ETF, symbol XT, which uh, was the first, I think, uh, exponential technologies ETF of its kind. Now you have dozens offered by ARC and um, State Street, uh, Kensho, Global X, Invesco, uh, and many others. And these are among the most successful, best-performing ETFs in history. The ETF that we launched was the second most successful ETF launch in ETF history. And uh, it has delivered on all of its promises, above average returns or below average risks. Of course, past performance is no guarantee of future results. Um, mm-hmm. So we're very excited about it and, and how it has launched an entire uh, thematic sector in the investing landscape. Uh, and what's next is Bitcoin. This is the next big thing, Uh, Bitcoin and more broadly, blockchain and digital assets. And that's why I developed three years ago the Digital Assets Council of Financial Professionals, because most advisors are unfamiliar with Bitcoin. They don't know how it works. They don't understand the technology. They don't realize the commercial use case uh, in global commerce. They don't understand the investment thesis or how to adapt it and include it into a client portfolio or into their practice management. So DACFP is devoted solely as an educational organization to teaching advisors and their firms how to do all this so that clients don't miss out on the investment opportunities, many of which have already missed out on an awful lot. This is the fastest growing asset class in history, but there's still a lot of room to grow. There's still a huge potential upside remaining. And so we're working hard to teaching advisors about this. And so part of my journey has been to acknowledge I'm leaving Edelman Financial Engines and the the traditional financial planning environment, because that's now ubiquitous. Everyone in America understands now the need to save for their future. Everyone who can save is saving. And I'm now focusing on the next level of subjects, which still most Americans and their advisors don't know about, which is exponential technologies, blockchain, Bitcoin, and digital assets. It's a big focus for the future. And I think the best investment opportunity since the invention of the internet in the mid-90s. 
That, you know, and I think advisors hear that, uh, and certainly they hear a lot about Bitcoin and, and blockchain. I think when they look at Bitcoin, there's still a skepticism over the volatility, over the arguments that I think uh, people are making for Bitcoin. Usually, present company accepted, usually the people who are making the arguments for Bitcoin have some sort of fund that uh, will invest in Bitcoin for you. So there's a natural skepticism there. Could you just give us the quick case for Bitcoin specifically, simply because I think that's the the, the leading indicator for all the stuff that you're talking about, and you know, help advisors kind of overcome that skepticism. Uh, it seems to be a tough tough gig. Um, you're right. If all you do is look at the price volatility, you'll be scared away from it, which I find kind of ironic because we argue to clients that volatility is why you should buy stocks. Our volatility is your friend. You take advantage of it through rebalancing and dollar cost averaging and tax loss harvesting. So we, we endorse volatility in the stock market. And the bigger the volatility, the better that argument gets. So if Bitcoin has huge volatility, how come you're not saying that's a good thing. And it's all because of bias. And a bias comes from a lack of knowledge and a lack of understanding, which comes from a lack of trying to learn. There's so much preconceived notion and myth out there that advisors are doing themselves a disservice. I think they're violating the fiduciary duty, by the way, and they're not helping their clients either in the process. So I challenge advisors to learn about it. We offer the certificate in blockchain and digital assets at DACFP, uh, an 11-module online self-study course to teach you about this. You get 13 CE credits along the way and a certificate. You can brag to your clients that you have demonstrated fluency in the subject. Bottom line is this, David, is that it's not about Bitcoin. It's about blockchain. Blockchain is the underlying technology that allows Bitcoin to exist. What is blockchain? Why does that matter? It's real simple. It's not nearly as confusing as a lot of people think, and we can cover it in just a couple of minutes. Blockchain technology is essentially a public ledger. Well, what the heck is that? Well, compare it to a private ledger. We all know what they are. Your checkbook is a private ledger. Your Excel spreadsheet that you're playing with right now while you're listening to us is a private ledger. Private. You're the only one who has it. You put the data into your checkbook, expenses and income. On your Excel ledger, you enter data into the cells. You can change the data whenever you want. You're the only one who has access. It's private. The problem with private ledgers is that you can manipulate the data. We've all heard of two sets of books. Al Capone went to prison because of that. So companies which tell us how much money they're earning and spending, well, we don't really trust them. And that's why we hire auditors and accountants and we have so many regulators coming in to double check them because we don't trust anybody. And that's the economy basis on which we operate, the trust economy. We are forced to believe each other. If I want to buy your house and you want to sell it to me, I have to believe you that you own the deed. And I don't believe you. I don't trust you. So I hire a title settlement company. And then I do uh, to do a title search. And then I buy title insurance. I spend thousands of dollars and I spend months trying to buy your house because I don't trust you. Blockchain technology eliminates, solves all of that. Instead of a private ledger, it's a public ledger. The ledger is on the blockchain. It's on a computer network available for the entire world to see. Anybody for free can put data on the blockchain. Once the data is there, however, the data is permanent. It can never be changed or erased or copied or, or uh, altered. It becomes immutable. And this means I no longer have to trust you when you say you own the deed because it's been verified cryptographically on the blockchain. Now, I simply have authentication 
And this authentication eliminates the need for trust. And as a result, I don't need to go to a title settlement attorney. I don't need to buy title insurance. We save massive amounts of money through greater transparency, speed, cryptographic security. And this is why it's so wonderful. So blockchain makes a lot of sense and people often understand that, but then they still ask, well, what's Bitcoin got to do with this? Why do I need Bitcoin? Here's the answer to that question for you, David. Imagine going into a casino. You want to play blackjack. When you sit down at the table, you can't play blackjack with your dollars. The casino demands that you convert your dollars into casino chips and you use the casino chips to play the game. When you're done, you convert your chips back to dollars. That's the same thing with the blockchain. The blockchain is a digital ledger. The US dollar is paper currency. We can't use uh, paper money in a digital money environment. So we convert our dollars into Bitcoin. That's the currency we use to play on the blockchain. And that's as simple as that. So we are using Bitcoin. It's the medium of exchange in a blockchain environment. So I guess the question then becomes, why do we value Bitcoin at what we value it at, right? I mean, where's the price discovery for right. Bitcoin in that model? We've all heard Jamie Dimon say that Bitcoin is worthless, that it has no intrinsic value. Uh, and others agree with him on that point. The reason that Jamie says that is because he's using classic economic valuation models to try to answer the question, what's the value of Bitcoin? The problem with those classic economic models is that they are used uh, to value companies. We look at the company, its management. We look at the product it sells, its revenues, its profits. How much did competing companies sell for in a recent transaction to come up with a basis for the value of a company? Well, that's fine if you're trying to compare Ford to General Motors. But the problem is that Bitcoin isn't a company. It doesn't have any management. There's no staff. It has no product. There's no revenues, no expenses, no profits. All those numbers are zeros. So if you look at all of those numbers and they're all zeros, you have to conclude Bitcoin therefore has zero value, no intrinsic value. That's what Jamie's talking about. The problem is he's applying an economic model for stocks that was never intended to be applied to digital assets. And that's why you get a non sequitur. What Jamie should be acknowledging is that although we don't know what the value of Bitcoin is, we certainly do know its price. Today, the price is about $60,000. Why? because that's what investors say it's worth. It's supply and demand. It's as simple as that. We have a fixed number of Bitcoin available in the marketplace. No more, no less than 21 million will ultimately be made. And we have a certain number of people, 200 million around the world, who are buying Bitcoin. The more people who want to buy it, since the supply is limited, the price has to rise. So the price is strictly a supply and demand scenario. It's really that simple. So you can acknowledge a, uh, a speculative fever uh, in the asset class. There are clearly, clearly, there are people who are in this to get rich quick, who have no idea what the hell they're doing. Great example is Dogecoin, Doggy Coin is its mm-hmm. other reference. This coin was invented as a joke, a satire on Bitcoin, and yet it has risen in value to these incredible heights. It's one of the top five uh, by market cap 
Elon Musk tweeting how much he loves Dogecoin. It makes no sense. This is going to be a black eye on the digital asset industry because Dogecoin has no commercial value. It's like a beanie baby or a tulip bulb. Pretty to look at, cuddly to hold, no commercial use. Bitcoin has a tremendous commercial use case, thousands of them by companies all around the world in virtually every industry. I'll give you just one example. Transmittals. We send $4 trillion a year from one country to another, cross-border payments, most of that by big business. But about 20% of that money are individuals, people moving money to family members or friends overseas. A common example are immigrants. Millions of them come to the United States from South America and Central America often for economic opportunity. They leave their families back home. What do they do? They send their money back home. That's a cross-border payment. When you move money cross-border under the SWIFT system that we all use every day, it takes five days and about 6.5% in fees to move money cross-border. With Bitcoin, it's not five days and 6.5%. You can do it in 10 minutes virtually for free. When El Salvador established Bitcoin as legal tender, it was projected that Western Union is going to lose $400 million because people don't need to go to Western Union anymore to send money to El Salvador. They can do it for free with Bitcoin. Well, here's the question you must get asked a lot. Why can't those kinds of distributed ledger networks be established without Bitcoin? Um, You need some conduit. And the conduit that was established initially was simply Bitcoin. You certainly can do it without Bitcoin. And governments around the world are working on this. They're called CBDCs, Central Bank Digital Currencies. Our Fed is developing one, projected that they're going to have it in place by 2025. It's projected uh, that most of the world's governments will have digital currencies in place by the middle of this decade. Uh, You've already got them in the Bahamas. China is testing theirs. Russia's launching theirs. Sweden will have theirs in 2023. Brazil just announced they're going to launch theirs in 2022. Because why are we printing this paper? It's expensive. It's cumbersome. It's at risk of being stolen. Digital money leaves a digital footprint. Law enforcement loves digital money. When the uh, colonial pipeline was hacked this past summer, It took the FBI two weeks to get the money back. When the Polygon network was hacked of $600 million, all it took was a tweet from the CEO saying, we know who you are, and the crooks returned the money. Digital money leaves a digital footprint. It's a great way for governments to combat uh, drug cartels, terrorist financing, tax evaders, the IRS, FinCEN, the SEC, Treasury Department, the Fed, they all love digital assets. And yet we're told about the, uh, uh, the anonymity of Bitcoin as being a selling feature. That's, that used to be the case, not any longer. And today, it's not anonymous, it's pseudonymous, meaning we know your account. We might not know who owns the account, but we know the account. And increasingly, we're dealing with uh, KYC and AML rules. And uh, more and more, the exchanges are following these rules. There is no question that the digital asset exchanges are going to have to adapt to today's banking laws in order to provide uh, comfort among the regulators and confidence among consumers. In fact, the, the CEO of Binance, this is the world's largest digital asset exchange, just said two weeks ago that we now have 2% of the world buying Bitcoin. But the only way we're going to get the other 98% is if we have more regulation. 
Mm. So the old days that you know go back 10 years where it was a Wild West environment of anonymity and a lot of drug activities and the dark web, all that nonsense, it was 10 years ago. You might as well complain about a Corvette in the 60s that didn't have a seatbelt. That ain't today. <laughs> Well, this has been great. I, I, you know, I think uh, good luck trying to convince uh, advisors. Uh, this is the way to go. I think more and more of them are getting on board with it. Uh, at the very least, their clients are asking about it, right? I mean, at the very least, their clients are maybe even. Well, David, uh, that's the key. It's not advisors are doing this kicking and screaming. Advisors don't need this, don't want this, don't care about this, but they're getting calls and questions from clients, and that's forcing advisors to become knowledgeable so they can answer the questions effectively. And that's what we do at DACFP. I want to arm you with the information so you can talk intelligently with your client. I don't care whether or not you buy Bitcoin. I want you to be able to explain clearly why you do or don't recommend it. That's all. Do your job as a fiduciary. Be expert in this subject because that's your obligation to your client. Your client expects it of you. And if you can't do that, then your client will find one who can. Fantastic. Uh, Rick, that's a great place to, to put a plug in. I, we're, I'm getting the hook here. I know we're at the top of the hour. So uh, I've kept you for longer than, than I, I intended. Uh, thanks very much for joining us uh, and, and sharing your thoughts. David, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. And this has been the Advisor Innovations Podcast. I'm David Armstrong. Thanks for listening. This podcast is sponsored by LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and member of FINRA SIPC. LPL Financial is a separate entity from and not affiliated with wealthmanagement.com.